This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. All right, so I've got kind of like a scenario for you. Imagine yourself in this situation. Let's say that you knew a junior high kid. Let's just make it a boy for the sake of the, the story. Say you know a junior high boy, and this kid is in pain regularly because of cancer in his body. In fact, the doctors have given him six months to live. And you have compassion on this kid. You hurt for him. So you turn over your world for him. You move out of your bedroom so he has a place to stay. Did I mention he was homeless? You gather up and have fundraisers to help pay for some of the medical bills. Did I mention that he had no money either? You turn over your whole life to make sure he's comfortable in his pain and suffering. You sacrifice. You're skipping work hours. You're doing everything you can for this kid to be a blessing to him. That is incredible, incredible sacrifice. And that is a gift. Like, you are a hero. That is worthy of, like, shouting your name. Like, man, what a, what a gift that you would give him. Now, change gears for me for just a second. We've talked a lot during the series about the progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is very attractive because it's pushing things like care, things like self-sacrifice. Their sermons are all about social care and their mantra is about unity through love and through tolerance. They desire to champion the marginalized and the hurting. If you read through their What We Believe pages, they're all about social justice and inclusion of everyone and taking action and taking care of the earth. Man, God's awesome earth. And so it's very attractive. It's, it, Jesus had a heart like this. He had a compassion for people. His followers have a compassion to go after the marginalized, to go after the ones who are struggling or hurting or excluded. That's Jesus' heart, and that's the heart of his believers. But the issue is that none of those really great things, none of those deal with the terminal issue of our heart. None of them actually pull someone off the conveyor belt to hell. Because we have an issue that's going on that none of those good deeds, none of those sacrifices can get anywhere close to. And it's sin. It's our corrupt heart from the inside out. And all the goodness that we do is about our own glory. Hey, I did something awesome. All our goodness that we do is the good feelings that we get when we're a blessing to someone. Making sure everyone feels comfortable and included doesn't deal with sin. Social justice doesn't deal with our heart. Even feeding the hungry or housing the homeless doesn't make us good. And it doesn't make them good. These are noble and they're loving and we should do these things. We should care for people. But they all fall short of eternal lasting value. All these good works are only concerned with horizontal relationships, temporary needs, the 
between me and you. Temporary needs. But they're desperately falling short of the most critical need, and that is the horizontal one between us and God. When it comes to salvation, progressive Christianity falls short, desperately short, in three places, just off the top of my head, when it comes to the realm of salvation. First of all, they don't even talk about the need to be saved a lot of the times. But if they did, they don't have an answer to the question, what did Jesus save us from? And if they even come up with an answer to that, the ways that they discuss being saved or having enlightenment are all about what we do. They're all about being nice or being good enough. It's moralism. And if moralism is a new term to you, there's a great website called gotquestions.org. It's a Christian site, and it deals with hard questions. And this is how they defined religious moralism. It's an emphasis on proper moral behavior, so elevating proper moral behavior to the exclusion of genuine faith. Christian moralists tend to reduce the Bible to just a manual for moral behavior. It has a whole bunch of do's and it has a whole bunch of don'ts. And it's just a manual on how to be a good person. The moralist relies on their moral actions. If they pray or go to church or help the community, then they're good with God. Moralism says that if you don't lie, cheat, steal, or date girls that do, then you're a good person and you're deserving of heaven. But the moralist is self-deceived in thinking that their good behavior somehow merits eternal life. And you know what? Moralism isn't limited to just progressive Christianity. Moralism is one of the reasons that Luther and a whole bunch of the other formers broke out of the Roman Catholic Church because the Catholic Church always emphasized a whole bunch of good works and a whole bunch of good deeds and giving money to the right places over faith in Christ. And this is true of Jehovah's Witness, and it's true of Islam, and it's true of virtually every religion on the planet. I think you would be hard-pressed to go and find a religion that doesn't have a, if you'll do this, then you get closer to our deity or deities. It's all about what you do, what you bring to the table. How, much can, how close can you get in your lifetime? Climb the levels. Say the right prayers the right number of times. This is moralism. And it's attractive because it does two things. Moralism gives us credit. And moralism gives us the glory. I climbed the levels. I did good enough. I'm getting closer to God. Or what if we flipped it just a little bit and said, I am not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. I can't meet the standards. I'm hopeless. So no matter which direction you go on moralism, you're in a ditch. No matter which direction you go, you're already failing. You're either in pride or what? You're in desperation. You're in depression. Self-loathing. Remember that junior high student that I opened with? Like you may have cared for him. You may have, may have made him feel important and affirmed. But if you never told him about the gospel that deals with the sin in his heart, all that you have done will come to very little when that six months are over. He will still die in his sins far away from God. And you know what? All that you did, all your good works, they don't deal with your heart either. You're still far away from God. What does it mean whenever I say far from God? 
A.W. Tozer gives us this great example. He says, what if we said this, like imagine a father and a son, and the father says this, my son and I are getting closer as he gets older. Think about that phrase. He and I are getting closer as he gets older. This father isn't talking about miles. He's not talking about like they moved his bedroom closer to the master bedroom. They're talking about relationship. Listen to how he unpacks this. He says, what the father means is that his son is getting to know him more intimately and deeply and having a deeper understanding of him. The barriers of thought and feeling are disappearing and they're becoming more united in mind and heart. And what we're talking about, that we are far away from God, we are far from united in mind and heart with God. And Jesus is the rescue mission for you to know God, for you to grow in heart and mind with God. The truth is we're all, we all start at a point of being far away and the distance is not of miles, it's in relationship. There's no social justice victory, there's no acts of care, there's nothing that we can do for the oppressed that's going to kill a rebel heart and bring it back in a place of holiness to know a living God. There's nothing we can do. In our scripture today, we're going to see that our salvation has nothing to do with what we do. It has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. Just as a teaser, just imagine the fact that it says, before the foundations of the world, he loved you and he chose you. That means that was before you actually did anything. You couldn't do something good to earn his favor if it was before you were born. You couldn't do something bad to lose his favor. And yet, how does he show his love? That he loves us. Let's turn in your Bibles, in your physical Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Some of you have already gotten there. Good job, guys. Some of you want a t-shirt. Doubly good job to y'all. Ephesians chapter 2. If there's a passage of scripture that you should go home and memorize, this is not a bad start. And I love this passage so much. Are you ready for this? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Give me a huh if you're not there yet. Awesome. Let's do this. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Very simple. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Anyone at Christmas ever earn your Christmas presents? That, that, that's counterintuitive, right? You don't earn your Christmas presents. Well, if you do enough chores, you know, maybe there'd be something under the tree this year. No, it's because your parents love you. All right, now let's rewind. It is by, by grace through faith. Not of anything that we do. Let's rewind and go to the beginning of this. Point number one, where are we? Where do we start? What is the status of the unbeliever? Let's go back, chapter 2, verse 1, and let's read in who we are. Y'all ready? And you were dead. Pause for effect. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You walked in sin, 
and you were dead spiritually, following the course of this world. So what were you doing? You're chasing the world and all of its sinful desires. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's the devil. You were a devil follower. You follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So what do we do? How do we live? Where do we live? We lived in our hedonism. We lived in the passions of what we wanted to do. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature, here you go. Here's our status. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When God looked at us, he saw someone in rebellion and under his wrath. That is our starting point. That is scary news. And if we didn't have the rest of Ephesians chapter 2, that would be terrifying and hopeless. And you are dead in your sins. This brings out three things that are at war against you. Three. It brings out the world that is corrupt that we're in. Like try jumping into a mud pit and keeping your white clothes clean. You're in the world, and they're throwing mud at each other. We have our own enemy that is fighting against us, tooth and nail, to bring down God's kingdom. And then, oh, we have our own flesh, the saboteur inside of us. And you know why the world and the devil have so much power? Because our flesh likes it. We want what the world has to offer. We want to chase all of those things that feel good and what we want. This is where we start. At a very hopeless place, dead in our sins. We're hopeless without an outside savior. Let me give you an example. So I grew up with very interesting characters. And my three closest friends for a good period of my life were... Ant, Corn, and Debo. That's Anthony, Cornelius, and Demarcus. And we went to Watertown, and Demarcus swore up and down he could swim. Now, I made two mistakes. The first mistake was that I believed him, because Demarcus only had one hand. The second mistake is whenever he's doing less than swimming in the middle of the deep end, I tried to help. Now, if any of you have ever had any lifeguard training or common sense, you know that if someone's in this position, you get a lifeguard who's trained or you get a team because there will not be one person drowning. There will be two if you try to help. So there was a point where I'm underwater holding his knees, holding my breath to try to get him air. And then there was a lifeguard who had more wisdom than 13-year-old Dominic who jumped in and saved us both. And he got to wear a life jacket for the rest of the day. And we made fun of him and that's how things go. We needed an outside source to bring wisdom and strength and hope and air to a situation that we were in. It wasn't going to happen on our own. He couldn't swim, and I'm underwater. And this is the picture that it paints for us in Ephesians. There's no hope outside of an external source. But if I could just for a minute, can I make this even more bleak? Because it opens with those words that I paused on. And you were dead in sin. Which means that the analogy of the Coast Guard throwing life preservers to drowning people to grab actually doesn't hold up here. Because dead men and dead women can't 
grab. When God spoke to Ezekiel, and he's comparing the spiritual nature and stance of Israel, and he's defining them. Now, Israel had God's law. Of all the nations, they had the highest morality. And God defines them as a valley of dry bones. Not just recently deceased, but bones that are dry and bleached out. This is their spiritual condition. Like you're not doing CPR on a skeleton and getting anywhere helpful. Are you following me? And you are dead in your sins. This is our status. So where does salvation begin? It begins with God giving us a recognition of our terminal slavery to sin. That's Romans 6, 20. Then he shows us our hopeless condition. I hope that for at least some of you are going, oh my gosh, this is dark. Are you serious? And then I hope that some of you actually have the Holy Spirit in you messing with you going, oh my gosh, that's me. I, I don't know how to get out of my sin. There's something broken and I, I, I don't have the power to fix it. I'm the one underwater with one hand. I'm the one who's the bleached bones. I, I don't know what to do. That's Ephesians 2.12. And we're destined to hell, which we absolutely deserve. Romans 1.32. But God is moving in your heart maybe tonight. Maybe something's clicking for the first time because I've got good news. Let's keep reading. The second point is who God is. That's the good news, is God's character himself. And it's what he's done. Are you all ready to keep reading? Let's, let's turn some lights on in this dark situation we're in. So we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God, you're dead in your sins. You're hopeless. You're following the devil. You're children under the wrath of God, but God. But God being, who is he? He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, let's remember who we are. We're dead in our trespasses, made us, and what did he do? Alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And you've been raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so God sees bleached bones. He sees drowning 13-year-olds. And God jumps in the water. And God does CPR on a skeleton. And because of his great grace, and because of his mercy, and because of his omnipotent power over sin in the human heart, he, through the cross of Jesus Christ, brings us back. But not back to who we were but he brings us back in new life to be born again. New life must follow death. Who is God and what has he done? He is merciful. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus, God actually defines his own name. And I'm just gonna read a portion of it, but it is so beautiful. Exodus 34, Moses has the chutzpah, he has the spine to ask God a very brazen question, to see God's glory. Like, where does Moses get off to ask the creator of the universe to see something that is so beyond humanity that no one has ever seen before? And yet Moses had this heart of pursuit that, we, oh, that Lord, that we would emulate Moses' heart of pursuit. 
And he asks God to see his glory. And God, like a parent responding to a child, says, sort of yes. I'm going to show you the best that you can see without my glory killing you. And he says, I'll show you the after effects of my glory. And Elijah read this for us last week. It's so beautiful. 34, verse 6 through 7. And God passes by Moses to see the after effects of his glory. And God defines his own character. He says in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, or this is the divine name of God. God is proclaiming his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. Hey, we just read that in Ephesians. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he also doesn't let our sin go without there being a price to be paid, which he pays through Jesus. But who by no means clear the guilty, visiting that sin on the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, a curse which Jesus meets at the cross and defeats for his people. But who is God? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. God's action towards his enemies, us, is an expression of that character. He loved us, he made us alive, and he raised us up. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. It's towards the back before Hebrews. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul, and he's giving sort of like an allusion to his testimony, and it's so good. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Give me a, uh, if you're not there. All right, cool. I'll wait on you. I like you guys a lot. Do we not have it? There you go. First Timothy 1, 12. No worries. We're kind of figuring out this whole not having the verses on the screens, but I think we're rocking and rolling here. First Timothy 1, verse 12. Is anyone not there yet? Give me a, huh? Sweet. All right. This is Paul speaking. He says, I thank him, talking about Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now listen to his testimony. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 2 that we just read. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, an enemy, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So who is Paul? He's dead in his sins. He's a blasphemer. He's an enemy of Christ. And what does God do? The love and the grace of the Lord overflows for him. And what does it do? It flows actually through Paul in faith and love back to respond to himself. So God is working on both sides here. He's reaching out for Paul and he's working in Paul's life with faith so that he can respond to the hand that God is reaching out to him with. That's the only way that someone dead in sin can know God, can respond to him. What mercy. 
What incredible mercy. Not giving us what we, not giving us what we deserve. But he shows us compassion. He shows forgiveness to the guilty party. Wow. His turning point in his life was God's mercy. Let's go back. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn before we go back to Ephesians. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I just want this to be burned into your mind. God's love for you. Burned into your mind that we were hopeless without him. And it's his great grace. Romans chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 8. You need to see this for yourselves. Is anyone out there? Give me a... Oh. All right, cool. I got you. I got you. You're slow, but you're worth waiting on. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God, oh, I love that phrase. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins, while we were enemies of the cross of Christ, while we were children of wrath, while we were actively in rebellion against him, we were not whipped dogs that God had compassion on. We were snarling, biting dogs that God had compassion on. While we were yet sinners, Christ, he came and brought food. He gave a place to sleep. No, he died. He gave his whole life for the people in rebellion against him. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, his blood at the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If Jesus would give himself, if God would give himself as the gift, how much more is God ready to hold back and stay his wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? Man, we have an awesome lifeguard. For more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received reconciliation. Do you know what reconciliation means? Reconciliation means we were far apart and God brought us back together again. Yeah, we were far from God. We were like the father and son. We're growing. God went out of his way to call you his adopted daughter and his adopted son. And when you were far away from him, he reconciled you to himself. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, who is like our God, that he would close the gap between himself, who is perfect, righteous, and goodness, and the wretched sinner that was only worshiping ourselves. Who is like our God? What is grace that he would pour it out towards us? All right, our last jump back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna continue. We left off with that God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And verse seven, that's where we're gonna pick up. Why did God do this? Why would he reach out and reconcile 
someone who was dead in their sins, an enemy. Why would he do it? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Give me a huh if you're not there. The pages that I hear flipping are giving you away, even if you don't. I got you. You ready for this? Why did God do this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved you because he's showing off how good he is. This is where our testimony comes from. Our testimony is not, I was good enough for God to save me. Our testimony was, when I was an enemy of Christ, God was good enough that he came for me anyway. God is showing off. He is getting all the glory when he pulls us out of the water, when he raises the dead to life. He gets all the glory. So God gives us a recognition of our sin, our terminal slavery to sin, and he shows us our hopeless condition of being destined to hell, which we deserved. This makes us turn and cry out for an outside source of righteousness. It makes us cry out for mercy. And out of his great love and through Jesus, and through Jesus' penalty substitution, which we talked about two weeks ago, he withholds judgment, which is mercy, and he blesses us, which we don't deserve, and that's grace. With what Paul says, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And the only response that we have left is to turn and worship and praise and obey the king that would do this for us. Has anyone seen the most recent County Monte Cristo? Jim Caviezel? Jim Caviezel? Yeah. I mean, it's a whole story about revenge. Not a great biblical movie to, to watch. But there is a really cool scene. And it's this guy who is about to be killed. And through Jim Caviezel's intervention in a fun little battle scene, Jim Caviezel saves his life. Edmund Dantes is his name. Saves this guy's life. Jacobo. And Jacopo grabs him by the shirt and he pulls him in close and he says, he says this, and I love the humor, he says, I swear on my dead relatives, even on the ones who aren't feeling too good, I am your man forever. And Jim Caviezel responds, I know. Why did Jacopo pledge his life to be a servant to Edmund Dantes? Why? Jesus didn't just fight for us. He didn't just have mercy on us. He gave grace and died for us. The only right response is a life of obedience to our King and worship to our Lord. Let's keep going. Ephesians chapter 2. How are we saved? We know who we are. We know who God is. How does he save us? Verse 8. Here's where we started from. For by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, your good deeds, the best that you have to offer, 
so that no one may boast. No one gets to pat themselves on the back. All the glory goes to the saving God. All the glory goes to the one who gives the gift. By grace, through faith. It uses the word grace two different times. Grace is when you receive something you don't deserve. This contrasts every other religion. Please, debate me on this. Find a religion that doesn't say you have to do these things to be better, higher, whatever. No, only in Christianity does it say, come as you are. Only in Christianity does it say, actually, God's going to you. God's in hot pursuit. Only here does he say, come to me. I'm going to save you, and then I'm going to clean you up. Then we're going to go to work. It's backwards from every other religion. Just like Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1, God extended grace to his enemies, and he moves in their heart to respond through faith to him, to bring their spiritual hearts back to life and save them through the cross. There's no part in this story where we contribute. For us to contribute would be like if our salvation was being in the car while God's driving 100 miles an hour, and we stick our foot out the passenger door to give him some contribution, some help, right? He doesn't need us. We're not going to be contributing anything to the propulsion of the vehicle. God is absolutely the one that is functioning on a whole level that we can't reach. And he's doing a work in our hearts that we can't do. This is who our God is. This is his great love for us. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Through faith, through trust. Faith is not something you do. This is not our gift back to God. Hey, thanks for my Christmas gift. I'm going to give you a gift too. Faith is our going, okay, I trust you. My salvation isn't based on me. It's not based on anything I can do. I've got to trust that my salvation is based on what you did. My salvation is based on your attributes, on your mercy, on your grace, on what Jesus did at the cross. When someone comes to me and says, how do I know I'm saved? I'll ask them, are you saved by your faithfulness or are you saved by Jesus' faithfulness? Do you trust that Jesus is faithful enough? Yes or no? That's the God that we serve. Jesus tells a story of a tax collector in, in Luke 18. You can look it up later, verses 9 through 14. And this tax collector goes to the temple about the same time as a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee in the Bible is like, oh, these are the religious guys. They got it all together. They do all the right things. And the tax collector is actually the thief that's robbing his own people and everybody hates. And both of them arrive at the temple, except the Pharisee goes further because, you know, he's got it all together. He's allowed to be close to the temple. And then the tax collector, while he's afar off, crumbles to his knees. And Jesus says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes towards heaven. But instead, bowed down to the ground, he hits himself in the chest, which there in that time represented mourning, and it represented repentance. And he hit his chest, and he called out saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. While the Pharisee stood by saying, hey, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad that I've got myself together, and I'm not like this Pharisee, or I'm not like this tax collector. And Jesus says, you know which one went home justified and right before God? Do you know which one went home close to God in relationship? Because it wasn't the Pharisee who had all the right works. It was the guy who said, it doesn't matter how close I get. 
It doesn't matter if I look up to heaven or not. It doesn't matter what I bring to the table. It's God's mercy or it's nothing. I'm going to stand before judgment one day. And if God's not merciful, if his character is inconsistent, if I can't just trust in him, then I've got nothing to stand on. I'm dead in my sin. I'm hopeless. I bring nothing to this. It has to be for your mercy. And throughout scripture, from page one to the end of Revelation, amen, God shows himself as the very God who justifies those who crumble to our knees and recognize his gift for us. Imagine a prisoner. They are on death row and they're about to be executed. Their heart's racing because they have 15 minutes before the guards step into the cell and walk them down the aisle towards their final end. Painful? I don't know. Maybe. What's going to happen on the other side? Darkness? I don't know. Maybe it is hell. And so this prisoner's heart's racing. And you know what just so happens, coming past the outside of his bars, walking freely, is a fashion designer. Maybe it's a Gucci fashion designer. Ooh, this guy doesn't care. And maybe the next person that comes past the outside of the bars is a realtor, and he has access and holds the deeds to some of the finest property. It means nothing to this guy. Maybe it's five minutes out. The pressure is on. He can see the guards at the end. They're having a conversation before they walk down the hall towards him. And suddenly there's a billionaire that walks by that with a single word, this man's account can explode. And it's vain. It's worthless. There's no dollar amount in his account back home that would help him now. It's useless and it's empty and it's vanity and it's worthless. But let's say the guards come and take him and they're grabbing him by the shoulders and he feels the squeeze on their arms and he's being propelled towards this room and the door is ajar and as they're walking him past, here stands the judge. And with a word, the judge could offer him, sign his name and he could be set free right now on the aisle to the door. Oh man, forget the fashion designer, forget the realtor, forget the billionaire. How would this man plead? How would he be on his knees pulling on this judge's robes? How would he beg for forgiveness, for hope, for a simple signature? This is who we are. We are dead in our sin and our fate is sealed unless there's mercy from some outside source, from someone with power, from someone who cares about us. And we are every day of our life waking up another step towards that end. That's a tax collector kind of heart. That's the kind of heart that says, God, I recognize there and I recognize here Lord, my only hope is your mercy. And he is faithful. He is faithful. And he is just. Ephesians 2.10. This is not a result of works. That has to be a gift. So that no one may boast. For we are. Oh, here's the best news. Because the judge rules out of his character for all those 
who come and repent, who are willing to call out for mercy. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his magnum opus, created in Christ Jesus with a purpose for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the point of scripture. This is equipping saints for good works. I love that it says prepared beforehand. God's been ruling over this stuff since the beginning. We're the clay in the hands of the potter, and he is molding and shaping you and me. And the potter has extended his mercy to the clay, and he's extended his grace to the clay so that the clay would glorify the potter. Every good work that we do, I loved Elijah's example, that we are the signature on creation. We are God's signature. Now, a signature on a painting has no value of itself. It's like $2 worth of paint. But because the signature points at the painter, the signature has, are you picking up what I'm putting down here? This is beautiful. And so God is crafting you and me, not because we have value unto ourselves. Our value is who we point at. And so we reflect our creator through our giving glory and praise to him. And we are his workmanship made for good works so that everything we do is no longer to my credit or no longer for my glory. It's for his credit and for his glory. Totally upside down from every other good work we may try to do on our own. We are saved and given purpose to be an expression of our God and to be a blessing to others for his glory. So I've got three simple things for you. Number one, be kind. Give it up of backbiting. Stop being behind each other's backs. Stop talking about each other. Be kind. Start smiling at each other. Start going out of your way to have a conversation with someone that you are far from. Be kind. Start speaking words of encouragement. Guys in the locker room, stop cutting each other down. There's nothing about that that's actually affirming. Oh, we're just guys. That's how we, I don't care. Love them with your words. Be kind. The second thing is speak truth. Remember my illustration at the beginning? Because if people don't hear about a faithful, loving, merciful, gracious Jesus, who is also a judge of those who are dead in their sin, then we have contributed nothing to their life. Speak truth for his glory. Be inconvenienced. Let's start having some holy inconveniences in our life. Where we're actually willing to stop our schedule and where I'm walking to and, and, and my agenda for the sake of a little inconvenience for this, to love somebody, to be kind, to speak truth. Let's be inconvenienced. Let's take the late night phone call. Let's go the extra mile. Let's be willing to break our purposes for the sake of someone else. And now we've come full circle back to works again, but in a totally different light. Instead of glorifying us and giving ourselves credit, it's all about Jesus. If you'd like kind of a real five-minute short summation that I think is just so good, go and check out the YouTube video. Type in the Gospel Vadi Bachman. I've got it up there. Shepherd's Conference. And it's five minutes, and it explains everything we talked about in much less detail than I did tonight. And it's so rich. Go check it out. So recap, 
There is no act of goodness that deals with the terminal issue of sin in our hearts. We are dead and hopeless in our sins. But God, out of his great mercy and love for us, makes alive those who repent and turn to him. Out of gratefulness, we worship him through the obedience of our lives. And we were saved to give him glory, to be an expression of his love in our praise and good works. So I've got two challenges for you tonight on top of the three. You know, the three, be kind, speak truth, be inconvenienced. Here are two challenges. One, if you're a Christian, let's continue to repent daily. Let's remember who we are apart from Christ and love and cling to him all the more. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your savior, if he hasn't saved you yet, repent. Give up living for yourself. Walk away from that. Have a turn towards him and give him your life. Surrender your life to him. And the second challenge is to worship. Go read Ephesians chapter one. It is a chapter of worship. Spend time thanking God for what he's done for you. It is such a beautiful chapter. Go read Ephesians one and worship your brains out because he's worthy. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done tonight. Lord, I pray that your word was, exp was expressed truthfully, clearly, and with conviction. Lord, you are gracious. Lord, let us grow to love your word and let us, oh, Heavenly Father, that you would just prick us to see how great your gift is. That we would wrap our minds around just a glimpse of the magnitude of the phrase, it is finished. We love you, Jesus. Lord, let every heart be turned towards you tonight pricked by your Holy Spirit, regenerated by your Holy Spirit, walking in faith that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.